This is a setting by Ned Roram of Words of Gertrude Stein. I am Rose, my eyes are blue. I am Rose, and who are you? I am Rose, and when I sing, I am Rose like anything. We know that Gertrude Stein, considering the queen of the flowers, declared that a rose is a rose is a rose. Later, she put that statement into a ring to indicate by a typographical trick that it could be repeated time without end and yet gain added meaning from each repetition. Her theory was that the same word repeated is each time altered slightly in emphasis and therefore that her ring around a rose expressed the rich expressiveness of nouns. It may be held to Gertrude Stein's credit that whether the theory is profound or silly, it is at any rate nothing in between. It may be even more to her credit that the manner in which she illustrated her theory was as perspicacious as it was unfair. For surely she herself must have been the first to realize that the noun she had chosen was no ordinary noun, and the circle she had made of it would be a magic circle, not because it clasped a noun, but because it clasped a rose. It is, in fact, almost impossible to imagine an entity more evocative than the rose. Not only do its roots extend at least to the beginnings of recorded time, but its petals embrace the deepest positive values ever held by humankind. The rose, for example, that culminates Dante's Commedia, embraces Mary, paradise, grace, divine love, and at the same time reconciles these spiritual concepts with the hitherto opposing concept of terrestrial courtly love. That from Barbara Seward in her study, The Symbolic Rose. Meanwhile, Frank Graziano reminds us that once the sign of Venus and earthly love, the rose eventually came to represent virginity, spiritual love, and above all, the Virgin Mary, who was a rose without thorns because she was free of sin. In the earliest Greek litanies, Mary was given the enduring title of fragrant rose, noble rose, chaste rose, rose of heaven, rose of love, and never wilting rose. Mary is the virginal flower, and in the broadened view, the rose garden that bore Christ. Dante referred to her as the rose in which the word of God took on flesh. In a medieval carol to the Virgin, there is no rose of such vertu. The rose is the rose that bear Jesus. The Virgin and roses were also associated through the innumerable legends and hagiographic episodes that linked them, notably the miraculous transformation of roses into the image of the Virgin of Guadalupe on the tilma of Juan Diego in colonial Mexico. Elsewhere, the late 14th century Virgin of the Rose Garden by Stefano de Verona, and in Lima, Bernardo Bitti's Mannerist Virgin of the Rose paintings exemplify the allegorical charge given to roses and their petals. The golden legend explained that during the Assumption of the Virgin, the Virgin was surrounded by red roses. 
El Greco's assumption features roses and lilies falling into the grave as the Virgin ascends. And back to Barbara Seward, she concludes her study about the symbolic rose. There will be no more roses, only when there is no future. For out of our emotions, hope, like fear, is bottommost. But though the unknown future may hold countless unknown roses, those of the past and present enclose the span of all our love. In light of the fullness and beauty of the symbol of the rose, we learn that the Arcadia Chorale of Northeast Pennsylvania will present a concert program titled A Christmas Rose this Saturday in Scranton and again in Wilkes-Barre on Sunday. Matthew Rupsich, Arcadia music director and conductor, paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about the richness of the musical selections they will perform. The Arcadia Chorale's theme for its December concerts is called A Christmas Rose. And we are focusing on texts that support the image of a rose that represents the Virgin Mary. And so all the pieces, I'll say, wrap around that theme and that image, which is very uh, nice. There's a lot of repertoire out there that is available to us. And specifically for this concert, I wanted to focus on two things. One is different settings of the Ave Maria text. And then also a new piece that I was introduced to, and it's just a, a gorgeous piece, There Is No Rose by Guy Forbes. Um, a beautiful work, which is stunning. And um, I'm really excited that the Corral is doing that. First off, you know, we should talk about the Ave Maria text. And historically, that prayer is organized in three different parts. And the first part is basically talking about the Annunciation. When the angel Gabriel greeted the Blessed Virgin on the day of Annunciation, and um, this is referenced in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter one. The second part is also a reference from Luke. It's Luke chapter one, verses 40 through 42, when the Virgin Mary goes to the house of Zachary and Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth, when they are greeted together, supposedly the baby leapt in her womb, and that Elizabeth was filled by the Holy Spirit, and that's when she cried out, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The last part is the text that was added of the holy name and the final petition for intercession. It first appeared in the 15th century in 1440, then it became a permanent fixture in the prayer. So that's how the text came together. Specifically for us and for me, I wanted to sort of have a study, if you would, of the Ave Maria text, and I chose three different settings that I dispersed throughout the program. One is a setting by a Spanish composer, Thomas Victoria. A second one is by a Latvian composer, Dubra. And the third is by Brahms, which is a very wide different scope of these composers, and that's very intentional. The first Ave Maria text or piece that the chorale is singing is by Victoria, who's a Spanish composer He's compared many ways to the Italian composer Palestrina, and basically this is a high form of religious polyphonic music. It's based on Gregorian chant. In many ways, the piece is simple in structure and form. So it's a beautiful setting that I wanted to do, and people don't necessarily know this piece by Victoria. We know other pieces by Victoria that are setting like the Omanu Mysterium, different things, but I wanted to, as I said, focus on the Ave Maria text, and I pulled this from his canon. The second piece that I'm highlighting of the Ave Maria text is by the Latvian composer Richard Dubra. 
So he's he's a contemporary. He's born in uh, 1964. Did all this study in Latvia. And what's interesting is this piece specifically was composed right around 1989. And it was right after the Soviet Union left all the Eastern Bloc countries. And, you know, so now we need to talk about here's a religious text being set. And supposedly when the Soviet Union was taking over, if you would, the Baltic states, religion wasn't, you, you weren't able to practice. So here is now a young man who has the opportunity. He sees change and he wants to set religious text to music. And that is what he's known for. And this is one of his pieces. This is a beautiful setting. Even my initial reaction listening to this and getting the music, I, I was going back and forth. I was humming and hawing if this is appropriate. And an appropriate meaning, is it too simple? Because it's chant-like, it's repetitive. But then as I learned more about Dubrah, I understood what his goal was. He wants a meditative state. He wants to be mindful, this term that we use, mindfulness. He wants to have very, I'll say, the lyrics to come through very clear. And the whole piece is very much meditative. So what happens is then his goal is to put the audience and his listeners in a different headspace, if you would, a different mindset. And if you allow then your singers to know what the piece is about based on text, Secondly, know that the composer's intent, what he or she wants to do, the piece is really moving. It's really moving and quite stunning. So I, I had to work through all that before I planned it. And there's something else that's really interesting to uh, note how Dubras starts his piece in many ways. He starts it on, a, let's say, a dominant chord, and then he resolves it to a resolution chord, if you would, a 5-1 chord, which is odd. Because usually you would start, you know, start with the tonal center and move along. But he doesn't do that. He starts with a, a resolution of some sort. And, and the resolution is always upward, I think, signaling his, his deep religious faith, as well as what he wants to communicate musically. Is it in Latin or Latvian? Or? Uh, it's in Latin. It's in Latin. All, all these texts are in Latin, focusing on the Ave Maria. And lastly, I'd like to talk about is the Brahms piece. Now, interesting enough, the two other pieces that I mentioned were for the full chorus, and um, the Brahms piece is only for the sopranos and altos. It's uh, for four-part women. Also, it, it should be noted that scholars argue if this is Brahms' first sacred choral work. And so I, I find that interesting. There are other choral pieces before, but are secular. But scholars believe that this may very well be his first sacred choral work. It was originally composed with organ accompaniment. Later, Brahms loved the piece so much, he orchestrated the whole thing. And then in 1878, he published the version we're doing with piano accompaniment. And what I find very interesting about this is that Brahms did not set the full text of the Ave Maria to this. He chose to leave out the ending so what he left out was the part that talks about sinners now at the hour of our death, amen. But his version ends with pray for us. So I just find that interesting. You know, that's a choice he deliberately made. Fortunately, you know, it's not something I particularly can find out why, <laughs> you know, why that choice was made. But he chose that, you know, in the prayer, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us, period, done. And uh, I just find that interesting. And it's something to, to note. And... 
in that light, of course, you can think ahead to the German Requiem and the sense of its being a comfort. Brahms' Requiem is a mass for the living. It's not a mass for the dead. And it also involves sacred and secular texts combined. So absolutely, absolutely, of, of thinking of, first off, the humanistic part of, of what he's trying to communicate. That's a, a, a wonderful connection. In terms of style, Victoria, 16th century? Correct. And as you pointed out, the Latvian composer is a contemporary. Contemporary, And Brahms, 19th century. So intriguing to hear the musical language. Exactly. Um, And that's that's one reason why I wanted to do that. A chorister of the chorale a couple years ago said something to me that I always love to hear from the members of the chorale of things that interest them musically. And uh, a singer just talking one day and said, you know, it'd be interesting to do a a concert of setting Magnificat texts. You know, just a bunch of Magnificats and do that for the maybe the Bach festival that we do in March. So I just, you know, I file those things away. And that's grandiose. That's big. So I, I was thinking for this concert, A Christmas Rose, when I'm focusing on the Virgin Mary and the Ave Maria text is specifically focusing on the Ave Maria. So why don't I do different settings of that to use that idea in a different way, but make it applicable to what we're doing here? As I mentioned earlier, I wanted to focus on two things for this concert. So one was the Ave Maria text, and then a new piece that was introduced to me titled There Is No Rose by Guy Forbes. This piece is incredible. I just, I was blown away by it when I first heard it. It has, what's really wonderful are tonal clusters throughout that Arcadia loves to sing. I'll say that's something that they enjoy. But this piece is also text-driven. It's, it's just exquisite. should know just a little bit about Guy Forbes. He's a gifted choral director and composer. He just retired in 2019 from Millican University in Decatur, Illinois. On a side note, I uh, attended the Show Choir Camps of America when I was in eighth grade at Millican <laughs> University. How would I ever thought that there'd be a six degrees of separation learning about Guy Forbes? He really built a huge program there. He had, he had over six choirs, and it just was incredible. He began composing choral music in 2005, and right away he started winning awards for his, his pieces. When he started composing, immediately he was getting recognized. This piece, There Is No Rose, was published in 2016, and the text is, I'll say, a traditional text that we use for talking about There Is No Rose, a reference to, to the Virgin Mary. What's interesting how he sets the text, there's text focusing on the image of the rose and the Virgin Mary, and then you have a Latin sort of response. So I'll say we have a little verse and we'll have an Alleluia. We'll have a little verse and then we talk about the, the res miranda, the wondrous thing. And then later, uh, some more English text. Then we talk about the Trinity, where he speaks to identifying Jesus as the Trinity, as God in persons three. Then we have the angels come in, exclaiming the Gloria in excelsis Deo. And then we, we leave at the end of the piece, the text is, we leave we all this world, mirth and follow we this joyful birth. And then this Latin text comes in, gadeamos, transeamos, and it ends softly and quietly. The text is, there's no rose of such virtue. Now the piece to talk about musically, it's in eight parts. It's a cappella. It's a very simple melody, but incredibly rich a harmonic language. 
It's layered textually. There's chromaticism. There's key changes. There are quite large dynamic changes. It's loaded with with material and and musical musical gestures that really just make this piece exquisite. And the crowd is doing it really well. So when I learned when I learned of this piece, I said I needed this to be an anchor piece in the program, just like the Ave Maria texts are. So then I created the rest of the program around those two items. When we experience There Is No Rose by Forbes, there's this little and then this and then that in Latin and then this. Is it as if it were a mosaic? I could only suggest what I think that Forbes is trying to communicate. And I think the Latin texts that follow these little verses are affirmations of the text prior. So I think that you know, when they, when they first talk about there is no rose of such virtue, then we sing Alleluia. It's an affirmation of that text. When we talk about the angels singing and the shepherds, then we go into the Gadeamus, Transiamus. So I think that those are responses affirming what the sacred text was prior to that. It's interesting you use the term mosaic. I think that choral music is just a mosaic of color and notes that in my role as a music director, I have to bring together to create art, to create this piece, to create sound and vocal sound, a choral sound. And so that's many pieces coming together. So I love that. I love that image alone. I mean, I I think that's my work. I really do. In the case of sacred music, of course, there's so many exquisite mosaics in Ravenna and places like that. But wait, Matthew, there's more. We hear it so often, and we hear Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and then it's by Mendelssohn. Well, what's interesting to note that we're also doing something that we haven't done in a while because of our going through COVID and stuff. So we're now inviting our audience members to sing with us on four carols throughout the program, and which includes Hark the Herald Angels Sing, includes Joy to the World, Silent Night, and and another. And what I think is really wonderful uh, about this is so we're performing at St. Luke's Church, and we're also performing at First Presbyterian Church in Wilkes-Barre, and I'm having the organist choir masters from those two churches. So I have Maria Zingen, who is the choir master at St. Luke, she'll be playing the organ for those carols. And there's three other pieces in the program that call for organ accompaniment. And I'm really, I'm thrilled to be working with these great musicians and other choir directors and organists to support this program. So Maria is with us at St. Luke's and then John Vida at Wilkes-Barre Presbyterian Church will be joining us and leading the audience in those carols as well as accompanying. I noticed coming from the opening concerts of spirituals, you have a William Dawson. It's interesting, when I introduced this program to the chorale, literally the Monday after our spirituals concert, that day after our October concerts, and how I run these rehearsals when we first start a new program, we just sight read everything. We just you know kind of go through it rather quickly. And we got to William Dawson's piece, The Spiritual, and I said, so I had to throw in a spiritual, and they like, of course you had to, you know, coming from the previous concert. And it gives us a sense of how these perennial themes and images can be interpreted. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting, those images are prevalent in all, all sort of structures, forms, and styles of music. So here is a spiritual that, again, came from a place of hardship, but being able to to demonstrate and hold on to their, let's say, their own personal faith by singing these spirituals. It's quite uh, it's quite special. I will also say there are not many spirituals that focus on the Christmas story because that wasn't originally what the spirituals were about. 
but there are a few and this is one of them that I'm really excited to have. And also there are opportunities within the program where, as you know, I try to highlight Arcadia singers. So for this spiritual, Catherine Carter, who's a member of the chorale, is also on the board. She will be doing the soprano solo for that particular piece. You mentioned the request. Wouldn't it be nice to do a whole program of the Magnificat text? Well, you do have one, right? <laughs> I do have one. Mary's Magnificat. So that's with Andrew Carter. And that is a great piece. He's an English composer. It was uh, written in 1986. Basically, the piece is considered like a lullaby. What's also interesting is even though it says there's Magnificat is in the text, it's not totally based on the Magnificat text that we all know. He uses parts of that text as well as text of his own. It is a beautiful piece. It's quite lovely. And something should be noted about uh, Mr. Carter is that his music is becoming so popular in England that his, his pieces have been on the radio broadcast of you know the Christmas Eve service from uh, King's College Chapel in Cambridge. So his writing is a, a very much at a high level. Um, and this is a, a gorgeous work, also a piece accompanied by organ. Just, it's really lovely, really lovely. And you mentioned the lessons and carols from King's College in Cambridge. Well, you give us once in Royal David's city that yeah. so often they tap that little... Young child, <laughs> 30 <laughs> minutes before, or might even be 10 minutes before, I think that, that child knows. Yeah, and actually that particular number, that will be one of our audience participation singing with the chorale. I wanted uh, I wanted to do that. I love that piece. And you know, knowing about that broadcast in England and knowing that typically the first number is Once in Royal David City, that is like the door that opens up to the whole program. And that, I just, I don't know, there's something that I, I just love about that. I feel that in, internally, I feel that emotionally. And so it's in the beginning of our program as well, you know, how to do it that way. You bring the program to a close with joy. Exactly, exactly. You know, and it's interesting you say that I was struggling with what should I end with? Do I end something that the chorale does? Or do I end something with the audience participation and the chorale? But our, you know, our goal with the Arcadia Chorale is to sing choral music at a very high level. That is what we want to be known for, and that is what we do. So I'm really excited about that. But with this program, and involving the audience, the goal of this program and concert is different. We want to invite community to join us. We want to invite others to join us and to sing along, first off, with a great chorale, the Arcadia Chorale, in incredible performance spaces with great organs and great organists, choir masters from those churches. So yeah, let's celebrate together and bring joy and let's leave in joy. There's nothing wrong with that. I know and you know that so many performances and productions at this time of year have a special guest, and it often is Santa Claus. But in this case, you have a special guest, and it's not Santa Claus. That is so true. So we are so lucky that the founding music director of Arcadia Chorale, which was formerly known as the Robert Dale Chorale, so Robert Dale Karama will be joining us for uh, these concerts. He's coming to both concerts that we have on Saturday and Sunday. In fact, he's gonna be here all week. We plan to meet him in the earlier week. I'm having a dinner with him and some other folks. 
and he wants to come here, support, and celebrate what we're doing. And uh, we plan to have, uh, we're going to be highlighting him in the program at the reception as well. And I'm looking forward to meeting him. And how lucky are we to have him come back and wanting to hear us, say hello, and, and to reconnect with something that he started that's pretty incredible. And it's been here for 40 years. So it's pretty remarkable. So we're very excited to have our special guest, you know, Robert Dale Harima, joining us for this, for this program. So our Arcadia is performing right after the Thanksgiving holiday, the following weekend. Our program, entitled The Christmas Rose, we're performing on Saturday, December 2nd, at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Scranton. That is at 7.30 p.m. And also then we're performing on Sunday, December 3rd at First Presbyterian Church in Wilkes-Barre, and that's at 3 p.m. Matthew Rupsich, music director and conductor of the Arcadio Chorale, speaking about the chorale's holiday concerts titled A Christmas Rose that will take place this weekend on December 2nd, Saturday, at St. Luke's Episcopal Church on Wyoming Avenue in Scranton, and that gets underway at 7.30 p.m. And then on Sunday, December 3rd, at the First Presbyterian Church, South Franklin Street in Wilkes-Barre, beginning at 3 in the afternoon. For more information on the web, arcadiacorral.org, arcadiacorral.org. A Christmas Rose, Saturday, December 2nd at 7.30 p.m. at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, Wyoming Avenue in Scranton, and Sunday, December 3rd at the First Presbyterian Church of Wilkes-Barre on South Franklin Street at 3 o'clock. For more information, on the web, arcadiacorral.org. And the Corral would also like you to know that you're invited to the annual Messiah Sing-Along, and that's in its 39th year, and that will take place Sunday, December 17th, beginning at 3 at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church, South Franklin Street in Wilkes-Barre, not far from the First Presbyterian Church. And for the details about how you can join in singing the choruses of Handel's Messiah, as well as the holiday concerts this weekend, arcadiacorral.org, arcadiacorral.org.